Every week on this show, we talk about the signs impacting your world. The headline-making signs news that warrants a step back in a conversation with someone who can help us figure out what's going on. But have you ever wondered what else we don't talk about? Well, so do we! Welcome back to the Weekly Science Show, where we hope to cover just that and update you on the science news you didn't know you needed. I'm Thanisharya Rajendran. And I'm Jun Kim. And today we're going to get up to date on everything from microplastics to human genome in another discussion on the sidelines. So what's our first story for today? So this is actually a really huge, monumental, decades-in-the-making kind of story. But the human genome has officially been fully mapped. I don't know if you know about the Human Genome Project. Have you heard about it? I heard about it. It was always around in like school whenever you did science class. And right. yeah, I've been seeing a little about it on the news lately. So yeah. tell us more. So it started in 1985, actually, the official Human Genome Project. So it's now been like, what is that, Three more than three decades? And basically, here's what it means to map the human genome. So in a human, every human, there is a bunch of genetic information. And what it means to map all of that information is that every single piece of DNA, so our DNA is just a combination of a bunch of base pairs, so Gs, Ts, Cs, and As, uh, and, and that's just the simple way to look at it. And in the human genome, there are 3 billion of those base pairs, those letters. So basically, the full human genome being mapped, that means that we have figured out all 3 billion of those Gs, Ts, Cs, and As, and in which order they appear. Uh, and obviously, that would take a long time to figure out. So we, we finally figured it out. The entire human, human genome has been mapped. And that means that we already know an, like an organism's DNA sequence start to finish with all of the genetic material. And we've done this with other organisms before, but obviously this is huge that we've done it for humans because first of all, our genome is very large. Uh, and also I think it's pretty important to understand, you know, how, how humans work and everything. And we've been pretty close for a very long time, uh, but it was just like the last 8% that was left in the last few years. So we, we just got the last 8% finished lately. That is so cool. So what was the last 8%? Like what part of the genome was missing? So I don't know exactly, but to be honest, a lot of the like the genes that exist or like the DNA that exists in humans, we don't actually use. <laughs> There's a lot of DNA that's in the human body that doesn't actually you know, create proteins or is used to uh, you know create other things within the human body. But even like... People used to call it junk DNA, but people have been realizing that junk DNA actually serves different purposes. And basically, it was this kind of DNA that's really hard to figure out because like, it doesn't actually make a protein, meaning we don't actually know what it does, uh, or at least we don't have a very good understanding of what it does. So it's very hard for us to map. But anyways, it was this kind of uh, you know, quote-unquote junk DNA, which is not actually junk. By the way, lately they figured out it's more important. But it's kind of this that was the last 8% that was left. Uh, but the reason it's important that we actually now have everything is that we now have the full picture. So like the metaphor this article used is that we have the complete book in the story of human DNA, which I think was a nice way to put it. And it's now up to us for us. It's now up to us to read that book, 
figure out its secrets, gather information, and apply it to the real world because there's a tons of diseases that are genetic or are caused by mutations in specific places. So we can now understand how bodily functions, like removing toxins or responding to drugs work. We can even see how like the human brain is different from any other animal's brain because we can you know, really see how that genome works. So we have the information. We just need to like really decipher it, figure out what's going on. And yeah, this, this is really awesome for the future of, you know, future studies in humans and understanding how the genes or genetics work in humans. Yeah, no, that is so cool. Like just having that piece of information ready to go, because this is a very long project that's been going on for such a long time. Oh, yeah. And also, there, I, there's a really cool fun fact that I learned through this. But uh, uh, guess how much, so every single human has very similar DNA, but some of our DNA is slightly different, which gives us different eye color, hair color, stuff like that. So you want to take a guess of what percentage of genetic material is different from person to person? I want to say like less than like 5% because like, are we like so similar to each other? Yeah, you're technically correct. We are much more similar than you think. It's 0.001% of our genetic material that's different. Everything else is the same. So those tiny, tiny differences, I mean, 0.001% of 3 billion. So I guess that's still a lot, I suppose. But those tiny, tiny differences is what gives us different hair color, height. Well, I mean, like genetic predisposition to height, you know, eye color, all that kind of stuff. So, you know, it's, it's really cool that we were able to do the Human Genome Project. Uh, and we can even look into those small, minute differences as well. But, you know, we're more similar than we think. Yeah, that is so cool to hear. So moving on from the Genome Project, I have something else for you. Microplastics. So what are your opinion on like microplastics? Because it's been very recently in the news. We haven't really heard about its impact till like the last decade or something. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I mean... I, I, like what I've heard with microplastics is just it's it's impossible to like really like microplastics are in sand they're in like the environment and like it's just like garbage that you literally could not get rid of right so yeah re really bad for the environment is what what I recall yeah it's really bad for the environment and we were finding microplastics in the fish that we eat till like right, very right, I remember years. that so guess what we found microplastics in human blood now oh, so that's not what i wanted to hear <laughs> that's where we are right now so let's get with that program so recently what happened was that there was this dutch study that had about 22 anonymous healthy volunteers whose bloods were drawn and then through analysis they found that 16 out of those 22 participants so about like 77 percent had microplastics in their blood which is concerning but this is the first evidence of like microplastic actually being in blood because previously we there were scientists who looked at other organisms or like stool samples from like humans and they found microplastics in there but this is like the first ever like blood sample having right. microplastics did they have any estimates as to how this happened? Like how the blood, like how the microplastics got into the blood in the first place? So yeah, some of the origins of these plastics, they tried to analyze what types of plastics were actually in the blood. And they found that there were like polystyrene as well as like PET plastics. So which makes up like water bottles and like those food containers. Oh, okay. 
So those kind of things. So those were the origins of like where the plastics are coming from. But as to like answer your question a little on like how it ended up the way it did. A lot of these microplastics, especially in these experiments, are like smaller than the smaller than the tip of like a syringe, you know? Okay. So, so tiny. you're <laughs> yeah, very tiny. So you can inhale it in the air. Just can, breathe it. Yeah, you can oh, just no. breathe it. That's that's very scary. <laughs> yeah. And your food and your drinks. Okay. That that one, yeah. Yeah, and some peculiar ones, like there's so many other ways, but ones that stood out to me is like wearing lip gloss. Really? Yeah, wearing lip gloss, using toothpaste. Oh, I use toothpaste. Oh no. <laughs> oh no. And like tattoo ink can do that as well. But yeah. Okay, well, that's slightly terrifying. It's essentially unavoidable, almost. You know? It's like everywhere. So you're telling me there's a good chance that I have microplastics in my blood. I mean, you <laughs> can't be 100% sure right, with right, the right. sounds of it. But no, like the data did say like 77% of their participants. So until we get like a larger database of like a lot of people's blood, we'll never real we'll figure it out eventually. But like this is some concerning data. So at first it was just pollution in the ocean where last week we were talking about like plastic like garbage islands right. and then now it's like oh there's microplastic pollution that we need to look out for because now it's in your blood oh no i mean that's it's terrifying for health I'm, I'm sure because this study is so preliminary they haven't done any studies on what it means for like long-term health or anything like that but i i'm sure it couldn't be good yeah, now they're scared that like they're trying to figure out if it can go through the blood and like brain barrier and reach your brain or oh, like your other organs. So that's all up in the air. Well, hopefully we could do something about that. Uh, so to move on from the grim future to maybe a little bit of the hopeful future, uh, let me let me paint a picture for you. What if you called an Uber like a rideshare? The car pulls up, and you peer into the front window, and it's completely empty. Well, that's actually a reality for people in San Francisco right now, because uh, there's a company called Waymo that's under like the Google company, and they have started to offer ride shares to their own employees and soon to select members of the public. And when you call the ride share, it's an autonomous vehicle, a self-driving car. So this is starting to become a reality. It's already something that's been doing that's actually happened in phoenix and now it's happening in san francisco so yeah that that's that's happening right now within a lot of places in america obviously there's a ton of regulations a ton of bureaucracy to try and get approval and stuff like that but yeah there's there's no one behind the steering wheel it's a self-driving car it takes you where you need to be taken and i mean slowly but surely self-driving rideshares are also becoming a thing that's actually a bit concerning. Like, I'm one of those people who are a little skeptical on, like, autonomous vehicles in general. But, like, oh, the ideas. It's really cool. It's Don't get me wrong. Like, this is an awesome idea. Pave the way forward. But, like, the safety precautions around it. Because, like, on a regular basis, I'm already anxious about driving. 
Yeah, I mean that's totally fair, and, and to at least hopefully slightly alleviate those those concerns, uh, the way they've been doing it is so far for right now there needs to be an emergency operator in the passenger seat, not the driver's seat, so they can like I don't know break the car if absolutely need to, like press the brakes, not not break the car, uh, and. Another thing that they do is they are doing like fully, fully autonomous rides. So like literally no one will be in the car, no safety operator, but that's only allowed on very specific streets. And that's only allowed at 30 miles per hour because this is America. Uh, so like they're, they're doing a lot of restrictions. They're doing a lot of uh, regulations. So, I mean, I, I don't think they're going to have like full scale, like, this is not going to be commonplace uh, within the next few years, probably going to take a little bit longer. There's actually a rival company called Cruise. I've actually never heard of it, but apparently they already have state permission to start offering these rides for profit and they can start making money off of them as long as there's a safety operator. So this has actually gone a lot further than at least I expected. That's really interesting. Oh my God. Now, granted, I can see like a lot of regulation and like a lot of scrutiny being placed on it because oftentimes it's not necessarily the concern of like how the driver drive themselves, but it's also the drivers around you because it's very hard to predict what, how everyone else on the road is going to drive. But yeah, if that happens, like, oh, I would be getting a grab or whatever. What's this called again? Uh, Waymo and Cruise are the two companies doing this. Okay, well, if it ever ends up in Canada and if it ever <laughs> ends up in Newfoundland, we have access to it, I would be on that. Yeah. But no, that is so cool. So moving from vehicles to like farm animals now. Oh, what a transition. <laughs> I know. <laughs> to something living. So recently down in the States, we've been seeing this outbreak of bird flu recently. And I think in like... 26 states now there have been signs of blood bird flu so now it is not detrimental to humans at all right now so humans aren't being affected by it but the poultry industry is being greatly affected because the moment you have an infection in your farm you're legally obligated to kill off all the potentially exposed oh, animals that's so sad Yes, it's very sad, but it's also a very infectious virus and very deadly as well. Right. I guess it's just standard procedure then. Yeah, it's standard procedure, but also like, yeah, sad birds dying. Um, but yeah, so what happened is that overall in like the last month alone, so the outbreak literally started a month ago, there have been... 18 million chickens as well as 300,000 tur turkeys that had to be put down because there were some infected in these farms and it's so concerning because like yeah like I said it's very deadly but besides just the animals dying it has a huge impact on the chain of supply for poultry in general mm -hmm. and it's like huge huge health concern as well because these are something that we as humans would usually consume so that's why the restrictions around it are so stringent so talking more on like the bird flu itself how the virus spreads is through dropping as well as nasal discharge and since all these animals are packed so close together that's how it transmits very fast but the origin of these infections are from wild birds so like ducks and geese 
that are in the wild, just flying around, and when these farm animals come in contact with. And this virus itself and the strain that we're looking at have actually been in circulation in like migratory water flocks down in Europe as well as Asia for like nearly a year. Okay. So it's not like a new virus that popped up somewhere instantly and just caused an outbreak. But no, this is like a circulating strain of bird flu. But yes, very concerning. Like that's concerning too, because you know birds have migratory patterns, so that means like they can spread this wherever they fly to, and you know migrate to, and then go back to where they're originally from. I mean, like a lot of Canadian birds migrate to the U.S. and then come back up to Canada. So like, there's even a concern. Like, what if it comes to Canada too? Right? That's, yeah, that's very concerning. Yeah, this is this news article was covering just the U.S. alone, but I'm sure like we have some bird flu happening. Like, if I were to recall my memory, but yes, this is like very concerning because a lot of like avian species in general, whenever there's a virus related to it, it's a huge like on the edge concern. Like, you know, it's not going to affect you. But there's always a little bit of a scare for any zoonotic transmissions. Yeah, and, and about zoonotic transmission, which is basically when the, the virus goes from animal to human, I, I saw this very, very compelling article about why we need to care about animal health to care about human health. Because like when we like put these farm animals in terrible, terrible conditions, it spreads disease, increases the chance that it also spreads to humans. Like there was like a population of like animals in Europe that all had to be put down. I can't remember exactly. It was, it was like a, a ferret or something like that. Uh, but yeah, there, there had to be this entire population, like millions and millions had to be put down because they all got COVID-19. And then they were also spreading COVID-19 because they were in very, very inhumane conditions. And like, you know, it, it's all cyclical. It always comes back to us. So like, you know, it, it, it's important to advocate for animals and animal health too, because it, it ends up, you know, Affecting us too, eventually. Yeah, pretty much. Like a lot of the one of the reasons besides global warming that we're seeing a spike on infection is because of like human activities. Like we're getting rid of forests, we're damaging ecosystems. These animals that carry viruses or disease that is not really like detrimental to them, but if they interact with human and other animals that they're not supposed to interact with. That's when we start seeing all these combinations of terrible viruses. Exactly. Well, I have a fun one to try and uh, transition into a little bit more fun, positive news. And the tagline is very simple. Fish can do math, which I never thought I'd say. So let's go into the story. So they took a fish species called chichlids. I think that's how you pronounce them. And also a type of stingray. And they tested both of these species and the study was actually meant to be slightly more complicated uh so like not too too complicated but the way they did it was they either showed a number of squares circles or triangles to a maximum of five so they would and it would only be one type of uh shape and those shapes would either be blue or yellow so they would say you know two triangles that are blue or they would show like one square that was yellow, something like that. But they never mixed and matched. I don't think the fish are there yet. Like if you gave them two <laughs> triangles and two squares, that might be confusing. But but anyways, one type of uh, shape and one color and a certain amount of them. 
And basically, what the fish had to do was they had to memorize the color and the amount. So, like, oh, yes, two blue circles or something like that. And then they would lift a gate and they would have to swim to either the left or the right. And one side would have one extra shape. So, again, if the original was like two circles, then there's one side with three circles. And there's one side with one circle. So one side has an extra shape. One side has one less shape. So if the original shapes were blue, that means add one plus one, right? That's where the math comes in. So if you had two blue circles, you go towards the three blue circles side. But if the original shapes are yellow, you go to the side with one fewer shape. So yellow means minus one. So if you had one or so let's say two yellow circles, you would go to the side with one yellow circle. So blue is plus one, yellow is minus one. That, that was all they were asking them to do. Like they weren't asking them to do like, I don't know, multiplication or anything like that. So <clears throat> in that, uh, they actually found 96% accuracy in stingrays and 82% accuracy in chichlids. So chichlids are like just fish, fish, like just Imagine a fish that they're your typical type of fish, and then stingrays, uh, you know, are, are not the same as like regular fish, but two creatures that live in the sea. Uh, so stingrays were more accurate than the chichlids. Uh, in addition, and kind of funny, the fish found subtraction slightly harder than addition, but I think like even human toddlers would probably agree with that. They'll so, learn yeah. eventually. Exactly. Yeah, they'll <laughs> learn eventually. But yeah, fish can do math. That is so cool. If I knew this, I would have gotten my pet fish to do my homework for me when I was younger. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And, and they even tried to trick them. It was actually kind of funny. They even tried to trick them. So if you show two blue circles, you have to add one because blue. But they tried to trick them. Instead of doing like three circles and one circle, so plus one and minus one, they would show three circles and four circles. So that's either plus one or plus two. But the fish still knew that plus one was the correct thing. So they still would go to the, the side with three circles. So, that you, so you, they couldn't trick the fish. They, they knew that blue meant plus one and only plus one, not plus two. So the fish actually knew what they were doing is, is what that proves. They weren't just swimming to a random side to get fish food or whatever. So fish aren't as stupid as people assume because I, I think there's this uh, like connotation that fish are like super dumb, have small brains kind of idea. But no, like this shows that they're capable of problem solving and to connect it a little bit more, fish do have some amount of, you know, ability to think. So, you know, overfishing, factory, uh, like fish farming and all those kinds of things definitely have a bigger impact than we are willing to believe, I, I would say. Yeah, no, that is so cool. Like, I love fish. Like, I'm from the tropics, so we have like so many different types of fish species and we had so many growing up. Like right now we have a pet fish that is actually 24 years old so like wow a year that's so awesome <laughs> <laughs> yeah and i always wondered if like he could understand what i'm saying to him because we grew up practically 24 is as old as me <laughs> pretty much it's a big fish too so it's yeah. like it makes sense um but no they're smart that is so cool so you said stingrays and another like fish species yes so now stingrays they're more closely related to sharks than like actual like normal fish i think yeah probably closer to that to that side yeah but they were still able to do this so yeah, that's so cool. So it's not just like, oh, one type of fish. It's like, oh, it's it's a little more general than that. Exactly, exactly. I'm glad that they chose like something that wasn't just a fish as well to just show that like many sea creatures 
have the ability to do this, not just yeah. fish in general. Because in nature, like dolphins are said to be really, really smart, and I, and I know they're like mammal, but like they're in the sea they're creature still sea realm. Creatures, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, no, yeah, you know what? They should you should use next sharks. I want to see how smart sharks are. I That'd know be very smart. cool, but I would also have some risk to the researchers. I would say <laughs> <laughs> better species. Okay. Um, so moving on from very smart fish, let's talk about slightly confused humans. So, <laughs> I love it. Okay. <laughs> so recently there was this paper published in Nature, which is like a really, really good journal, um, where people raised in cities compared to people raised in countries had worse sense of navigation. So the way they set up this experiment is actually really cool. So this group of researchers, they created this game called Sea Hero Quest, like this mobile game called Sea Hero Quest that was designed for neuroscience research. So the purpose of this game was to carry out neuroscience research, but you can use it on your phone. And the way the game works, it's a navigation game and you have like a little boat and you're supposed to navigate this boat to certain checkpoints. And based on that, the researchers would analyze your results and determine your navigation like skills and then put them into different groups and stuff. So they had about, 400,000 people use this uh, game from 80, sorry, 38 different countries. And what they found is that generally people who were raised in the country had a better sense of navigation than those that were raised in cities. Very interesting. So do you want to take a guess into why this happened? Um, let me think. I mean... Maybe, I mean, maybe people in the city, like, I mean, this is going to be a, a weird way to put it, but the city, cities are often like really made as mazes almost like there's winding roads and like so many streets and avenues, honestly hard to navigate. Maybe they're over reliant on Google Maps. I don't know. <laughs> yeah, no, you're actually on like a really good track. So cities like places like Chicago, they have like a grid system for all their streets. And it's so complex compared to like, countries where like you know which road leads where and it's long stretches of road compared to cities where you have like all these tiny tiny like streets running through buildings and things like that uh -huh. so yeah the complexity of some of these street networks can make it hard for people who are raised in the cities to understand basic navigation that you would see in the country or long stretches of road but this can be dealt with through learning and practice. So this is not a permanent thing. It's just like a small inherent thing. Right. That makes sense. Yeah. So what they wanted to look at even further in a more um, neuroscience concept is that whether or not it had any effect on the difference in brain activity. And they did find that certain cognitive capacities in the brain, especially like spatial navigations, were slightly modified in those living in the cities compared to those living in the countries. So the way that they perceive some spatial um, navigation and places around them, which makes sense, but is which is also cool to see that in the level of like your brain patterns. Right. Yeah. Because like some people are like visual learners. Some people are like 
you know, audio, audio learners, like learn through listening and stuff like that. I, I wonder if like this even has an effect on something like that. Like people who are more in rural areas or country areas can, you know, visualize things better. And maybe like, I don't know that, that I seems to be very interesting that it has a difference even in, in the brain's perception of space. That's very cool. Exactly. And like, since they did this basic navigation quest, but and they wanted to look at maybe if they changed the game into more of a city grid setting, would the people living in the cities fare better in that game? And this time it's called City Hero Quest. No, nice. I'm not. <laughs> yeah, I know. It's it's so fun. It sounds like something that you would just download out of like a Google app store. But basically, this new version of the game allows for users to navigate um, cities using their grid system. So they wanted to know if like um, both people living in the cities and in the countries fared the same or did the people living in the cities had more of an advantage because they grew up in like this grid system. But yeah. That is what I have for you today in terms of people's navigation skills. That's awesome. And, and hopefully we can hear back and, and find out what the results of that next step is. That'd be awesome to talk about in the future. I would want to play that game. That yeah, sounds I like Also, a- yeah, we could download the game and maybe be participants ourselves. <laughs> <laughs> okay, so thank you so much, June. Uh, yeah, no, thanks. Thanks for doing this with me. It's always a pleasure. Yeah. Thank you again for tuning in and remember to subscribe for more conversations and some insightful answers to your questions about the science impacting your world. If you want to learn more about the genome, microplastics, or any of the other topics we talked about on this show, visit us on Instagram, Twitter, or TikTok at sci for everyone and on our website at www.scienceforeveryone.ca. Sidelines is a podcast by Science for Everyone. It's produced by Sam Marchetti, June Kim, and Tanishari Rajendran. On the Sidelines is sponsored by the University of Toronto Student Engagement Grant.